whether it's the price or the other terms of the deal, everything in this world is negotiable. Buying and selling businesses just got a lot easier. Welcome to the Web Equity Show, where thousands of successful entrepreneurs go to learn about buying, growing, and selling online businesses. Your hosts, Justin Cook and Ace Chapman, share their real-life advice, examples, and expert interviews to help you build and grow your own online portfolio. Now, to your hosts, Justin and Ace. We are back. I'm Justin Cook. I'm your host of the Web Equity Show. I'm here with Ace Chapman, my partner extraordinaire on the show. What's going on, buddy? Not much, man. I'm excited to jump into the episode today. Yeah, man. We're talking about negotiating the deal. So we're going to talk about pre-negotiations, what you need to have in mind. We're going to talk about points of negotiation, things that you might not have considered and how to negotiate, whether you're coming from the buy or the sell side. We've got a lot to cover. Before we do that, buddy, let's do some listener love. We've got our first five-star iTunes review, man. First one. This is a, a big milestone. You like that? This is your first podcast review ever, and it is five stars. It's from <laughs> Matthew H. He says, extremely insightful. Absolutely love it. Ace and Justin knock another one out of the park. Great advice and information for anyone wanting to learn more about buying businesses online or off. Keep up the good work, gentlemen. Well, thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. We also got a couple of mentions on Twitter. We had Will Tajerlin said, already cruised through the first three episodes this morning. I'm looking to sell in December. Great, Will. Do reach out to us if you have any questions. We'd love to get those answered and maybe even put you on the show. Got another one from Josh Shogren who said, loving the show, my man. We'll be following for sure. Keep it up couple of mentions, you know, Tung Tran, he said, congrats on the launch, guys. And our buddy Matt Paulson said, check out our brand new podcast, gave us a retweet, along with Andrew Ite said, subscribed, I'll get into these tonight. So thanks, guys, so much for listening to the show. Glad you appreciate it. All right, man, let's get right into this show. Today, we're talking about negotiating the deal, which can be the most interesting and possibly the most stressful part of actually getting a deal done. This is something that Ace and I both enjoy and and get really stressed out about when we're doing it for our clients and for ourselves. Yeah, it's funny. Everybody really focuses on due diligence and getting a really good deal there. And to the end of that, and you're starting to negotiate what the terms of and what we're talking about that whole post due diligence aspect of the deal. Yeah, it's funny because you know you can do due diligence and you're saying, oh, this site is great. It's fantastic fit for me. And then all of a sudden, that deal can go to crap in negotiations. Like what was an amazing deal turns out to be not so good. And it's something you should walk away from. And I think that's why negotiations are really important. Yeah. Sometimes you may have a sticking point in the deal. And it's something that's really important to you that the seller isn't willing to budge on. Or it's just something that's, that isn't crucial to them. And they're wanting to go to another potential buyer. Yeah, I think ultimately, you know, you're looking for a balance between you know, what you need to make it work, what the other party needs to make it work, and what you both actually want out of the deal. And, you know, this is cheesy a bit, but you are looking for that kind of win-win scenario. And we're going to talk about this a bit more, but trying to find out what is a win for them is going to give you some leverage and give you some opportunity to actually make a deal that works for you as well. And I know, Justin, talk to people, people have this vision. I think it's from maybe Wall Street movies or, you know, just seeing other huge titans and how they people in business. But a lot of times people think that that effort to negotiate that win-win has to be this big orchestrated, you know, kind of tyrant coming in and making demands and, and that kind of thing. And the truth is, in most cases, 
you know, the old saying that, you know, it takes honey to attract bees. You can be really nice to the person and still get what you want and be that likable negotiator. It's funny. We recently had a client selling a site and he was going to do both a seller interview with me and then he was going to get on the phone with you. I think it was like yesterday and he was a little nervous about it. So he was chatting with us about it and I said, look, if you're going to be getting on the phone with anybody, like Ace is like the nicest guy on earth. He's, <laughs> he's great. So was, he's going to make it really smooth. He's a professional. And he's like, I was like, if anyone, if you're going to you know, do the, your first call with a potential buyer, like he's the, absolutely the best one to do it with. And I think there's some value. You provide some value there where you're really likable, right? So people get on the phone with you. They're like, oh, he's just, he's a cool guy. He's really nice, you know? And I think it's disarming to some degree. And I think it really helps you in your negotiations. Well, I have been on the phone before and come to an agreement even and had people tell me, I remember one case, actually, it was a deal that we were doing together. And they're like, well, we realize that you're getting over on us in some way. We don't know what it is, but we know that, you know, there's something hidden in this. It's like, no, there's not at all. But it is funny. I think sometimes people just feel like, okay, if you have the reputation as a good negotiator, that there's some trickery involved or some kind of, you know, aggressive nature. And that's not the case at all. That sucks, man. Your <laughs> reputation is preceding you. You're uh, <laughs> causing yourself some issues there. All right, buddy. So we got three sections we're going to get into. The first section is the pre-negotiation. So this is before you sit down at the table and get the deal done. Then we're going to talk about the different or the various points of negotiation when you're buying a website or a business there's a bunch of things. Some of them are pretty obvious, obviously price and that kind of thing. Some of them are not so obvious. We want to cover that. And then we're going to get into finally some negotiation tips. When you're at the table, what can you use as leverage? How can you find the sweet spots, the person across the table and that kind of thing? So to start, man, in the pre-negotiation, I think a really good plan is to break out your critical versus non-critical points. So there are some pieces in the negotiation, which we're going to get into the second part that are critical to you like you won't do the deal unless this happens and don't lump a bunch in there like make sure that they're really just the points that you can't budge on or won't budge on and then everything else is negotiable so you have everything else on the different side the other side of the piece of paper so you kind of have a grasp going into it you know what's most important and what's not yeah one of the things that even in kind of pre-deal i like to walk through with clients is envisioning the deal that you want and then coming up with the characteristics and the kind of the critical points of what you want in the deal, even before you get to the deal that you're going to make an offer on. Because once you start to look at that offer, sometimes you can start to think things are really important to you that at the end of the day just aren't. And so kind of I think that's a great idea. And even before that, getting some clarity on what your expectations are for the type of deal and the terms that that you're going to be happy with so that you don't get caught up in the emotions of negotiation and start fighting for things that at the end of the day aren't critical to your goals. Yeah, I've seen that where you get to the table, I've been that guy, where you get to the table and you start arguing for things that weren't really in the initial blueprint. They weren't that important to you before. But all of a sudden, when you're like conceding points, then you're like, well, I want to take a little back. It's almost like divorce court or something, right? Where you're like, you're battling for this and no, that's my chair or whatever. Um, (laughs) Maybe not quite that bad, but there are points that become important to you in the heat of battle that maybe weren't as important to you before. So yeah, I agree that if you can have those kind of like, you know, scoped out that's beforehand, that's beneficial. 
Yeah, and I think the connection with the divorce court thing is that there's a lot of ego involved. It's not this logical thing. And so one of the things I recommend is once you do get past that point and you've found the deal, you want to write out some scenarios. What are the different possibilities? Because it's not even to say that there is one set deal structure that's the perfect deal structure and it happened to be the first one that you decided that you wanted. So people can decide what they want. Even if the seller comes back with another suggestion, they're totally closed off because they feel like, no, this is the deal that I want. So one of the ways to get around that is just to come up with several scenarios so that even if the seller comes back with something that you're not agreeable with, you can go back to them and show them, hey, I'm willing to be a little flexible. I'm not, you know, the oak tree that's stuck in exactly the position I am and have no flexibility. Yeah, that's interesting. So maybe you're willing to do, like you write down a few scenarios. I'm willing to do 90% cash up front. I'm willing to do 70% cash up front, you know, 25% over the next six months. And you have all these like different scenarios, you know, written out so that, you know, if negotiations stall or something, you can come back to those and mention them saying, look, this is something I might be open to. This is something I might be open to. And it might that kind of spur something in the other party that whether it's the seller or the buyer that they hadn't planned on, right? I think that you know it's okay to be strict in pre-negotiation when you're by yourself and you're saying, okay, here are the critical, here are the non-critical points when you're writing out your scenarios. But I think you need to back off that when you go to the negotiating table. You want to really open that up. And in fact, I really argue that you don't want to dismiss, discount, or commit to anything at the negotiation table. So you're not going to say, okay, it's a deal. It's always going to be, okay, that sounds great. And you leave it really positive. You bring up some other alternatives. And then you're going to have to go back, step away from the deal, make sure that it matches kind of your expectations. That's something you want to go forward with and then come back and get the deal done. Yeah. And I think it's about taking that why. Sometimes a seller will come up with, and we were involved in a deal here towards the end of last year, where we were negotiating with a seller. He had some financial things going on where, you know, he had owed the government some money and some things. So he felt like the only way to structure the deal to get done what he needed done was to get all of this cash up front. Well, once we realized, okay, his real motivation is because of this, we were able to come up with a solution kind of that cost us a lot less money than solved his problem because we knew what the motivation was. You also don't want to commit to something because it may not even be something that the seller really needs until you find out the why behind what they're saying that they need. The other why that you want to kind of communicate with them is why you're the best possible buyer for their business. Sometimes you get these sellers that have an emotional attachment to their business. They want to see it thrive. I've sold businesses that it broke my heart that the seller came in and tried to do things a totally different way and everything was working in the business and they end up killing it. And that just sucks as an entrepreneur to see something you poured your time and effort and energy into, you know, disappear off the face of the earth. And so when you can communicate with the seller that you've got a plan, you've got something that's going to continue their legacy and take it to a whole nother level, that can be a huge selling point for the seller. Absolutely. There are other things too, right? So if you're a buyer that you have cash in hand, that's an advantage, right? So if you have all these advantages, come in with that and use that as kind of leverage, right? Like you're selling the other person that you're the best person to do business with. Like if your site has 
is a great fit for them and you know it, you can like lay out the reason as a seller, you can lay out the reasons why it's great for them. If you know you are motivated to train them because it is your baby and you want to make sure that it goes far, mention that as the seller. You're selling them on why they should take it, but you're also selling them on why you're the best person for them to work with and you want them to feel warm and fuzzy walking away from the table. Absolutely. All right, buddy, let's go over some points in negotiation. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to mention them and kind of get your thoughts on how to negotiate, why it's a point of interest, when you've negotiated on it, that kind of thing. So first one's pretty clear, man, dot, total sales price. So you can negotiate on the total sales price and give me your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I think unfortunately, because in every other area of our life, everything is focused on price. And from a consumer's perspective, price is crucial. That's going to be the kind of the basis of your cost for something in addition to interest or taxes that are associated and all of that. So when it comes to buying a business, people naturally want to focus on what's the price of this deal and how can I get it at a lower price and I want a discount and I don't want to pay the sticker price, blah, blah, blah. The truth is it price just doesn't matter in this space. And I had a huge shift for me with a guy that was in private equity that was one of my mentors. And it was a weird thing for me to think about, but he would kind of remind me if I could get a billion dollar company and have to pay $2 billion for it, but control the other deal points or terms of the deal, I'll take that deal all day long because I'm going to pay half a million down and 50000 a month for the next thousand years and get this amazing cash flow. So when you're doing these deals, what you want to focus on isn't the price. It's the ROI of the deal. Is this making me the money I want to make and, and that kind of thing? What we're buying is return on investment. We're not trying to get a lower price on a car. Yeah, it sounds like you're trying to hustle me, Ace. You know what I mean? Like it sounds like you're trying to, oh, don't look at the price. Look at the monthly payments, <laughs> right? You sound like that That's that car selling guy. But I get what you're saying, and you're mentioning it on both the buy and the sell side, and that's true, right? It's true on both sides of the table. That total price is not always the biggest concern. And I wonder how many people we've had, you know, look at sites for sale or whatever, and they're like, okay, 200000 I can't afford that. Moving on. When mm-hmm. if it would have been listed, like maybe if we like laid out scenarios, like, 50,000 down, 100,000, you know, finance, whatever. Like we laid out different scenarios. They've been like, oh, I can afford that, right? But they see mm-hmm. the sticker price. And they're like, nope, I can't do it. And they lose it just looking at the price tag. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so that's important to realize is that whether it's the price or the other terms of the deal, everything in this world is negotiable. It's funny, you know this, Justin, traveling around the world, but in America, we're not used to negotiating every aspect of our life. I mean, you know, you go outside of the U.S. and everything is negotiable. <laughs> you know, you go to the market, all of your groceries, everything that you buy, you can negotiate. And people in other cultures are used to that. For us, we're used to, if I can afford it, I just don't buy it. There's no other option. <laughs> so price is definitely negotiable. You want a little practice with that, man. Go to the Benthon market in Saigon and you'll get a master's course in, uh, in negotiating like $3 <laughs> items. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're pretty good at that. Yeah, I think sales price is an interesting one. Let's talk about the second one, which is seller financing. I know I know you like to work your deals here. And there's a whole bunch of different ways. When I'm talking about seller financing, I'm meaning you know, they could actually do a loan. They could do a rate or you know, no rate. Sometimes you get interest-free loans from the sellers. This might include earnouts. It's based on some kind of 
percentage of the profit or the revenue could yep. be a holdback, right, based on a certain amount of training or certain things, certain goalposts being matched, or it could even be seller retained equity, which we see less often, but happens as well. What are your thoughts, man? So the reason this is so important to me, as you know, <laughs> Justin, it's part of it, obviously, is ROI. and It allows the deal to be more affordable and, and all of the financial reasons. But the other thing that's important is that due diligence check. So, you know, you go through due diligence, everything looks good. But if a seller isn't willing to kind of take some payments, it tells me one of two things. Either they don't have a lot of faith in their business and they're concerned that you're going to be able to make the payments, or it tells me that they don't have faith that you're going to be able to run the business. And honestly, as a buyer, I would have listened to both of those. Because if the seller who knows this business, who's built it from scratch, knows it inside out, they talk to me and they feel like either because of your background or because they don't have the everything in place that allows a new buyer to come in and take over that business, they don't feel like you're going to be able to run it. That's just as good a reason for me not to do the deal as them feeling like the business itself is doomed. Yeah, it's, it's interesting with seller financing. Like it's an easy way to sneak in additional benefits, right, on the buy side. Like you can make sure that they require certain amounts of training or that their processes are included, or that certain other things are met or matched. And so I think that's pretty interesting. One of the things I think is important from the seller's perspective is that if you're going to do an earnout, that earnout should be based on revenue and not profit. Profit can be, you know, I had to put money back into the business, man. I had a business expense, right? I had to go to, I had to, go to Vegas <laughs> and blow it on black or whatever, you know, you can throw in whatever. So that's not ideal. Yeah. Retained equity is a weird one. So you don't see it all that often, but you'll get it when buyers feel like they want to keep the seller around because they have some kind of specialized knowledge. They want them still involved in the deal more than a month or two down the road. We've got a deal right now where the buyer is asking for the seller to retain 10 to 20% equity. And obviously they get a discount too as well. But I think it's interesting from the seller's perspective because that they're sitting on something that could really blow up and do really well. You have this sometimes where sellers are like, ah, I would like to hang on to this, but I got other things I'm working on, but I just know there's real potential there. Well, that's a way for them to put their money where their mouth is and keep a little bit of equity and still try to guide the new buyer in the business along. Yeah, I'm a big fan of tying the buyer in. Obviously, allowing them to have, I mean, tying the seller in. Obviously, them having something like an earnout gets them out at some point. It, equity is a little more permanent. So as a buyer, you want to take that into consideration. But in order to do any of these things, that point we mentioned earlier is crucial and having that likability factor. If you're planning on trying to get the seller to do something like hold back some equity or do some financing, it's going to be pretty tough to get them to do that if they don't like you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a pretty good point. The other problem with retained equity, I think, from the seller's perspective is like, you know, when's the next exit opportunity? Like, how is that yeah. going to be liquid for them at any point in the future? And so that can be, you know, kind of a difficult thing. And, you know, they just have to work together to do that. And like yeah. you said, they're going to have to like each other. Let's talk about the third point, man. What do you think about a non-compete? How can that be negotiated or leveraged on one side or the other? Before you can even negotiate that, one of the things you have to do the research on is to be sure that they don't own competitors already. You know, we've been in deals where, you know, they've been, we get in or we get kind of late stage and then we figure out, oh, okay, there's this other site that you own that you didn't disclose that is a direct competitor to this one. That's kind of sketchy. So as a seller, 
first of all, if the more open you can be, and there have been situations where it's like, okay, here's why you didn't maybe think that it was important to disclose that. But no matter what, a buyer is going to get a little sketched out if they feel like you've held anything back purposefully or not on purpose. And so it's really crucial for you to try to figure out, okay, what's anything, you know, is there any level of competition? Did I create a social media site that I wasn't planning on really making a part of this deal, but I still need to disclose that I own that because it's kind of connected to this. And so all of those things are kind of the first step. Then the step after that is coming up with a reasonable non-compete. Now, a lot of buyers will come in and immediately say, okay, you can never, ever do another business like this for the rest of your life. That can be a tough thing for a seller. And, and so what I like to try to focus on, especially if there's finance and that kind of thing, you know, I, I like to have a few years where I'm going to make all of my money back from the deal and also obviously have time to build a business, create a lot further distance between me and somebody else. But if somebody does come back to the space, it's not a direct competitor and it's something that just happens to be in that industry, that's not as crucial to me than just obviously doing something like copying the exact idea and restarting it. So you've got to be specific and have some clarity about how you negotiate the non-compete. Yeah, and, and what that non-compete means. I think non-competes are kind of interesting, and this is kind of one of those, it could be a hot spot for you as a seller or buyer, or completely not be. We've had situations mm -hmm. where sellers, you know, they have like three or four sites in the same niche because they created them all when they were just starting out, and then one of them really popped. One of them popped up and did really well, and they kind of just left the other one sitting there. So when the buyer comes in and says, look, you know, I want to make sure that I get these other sites that you've created and I want to make sure that you have a non-compete in this niche or whatever. Like that's not even an issue for the seller. They honestly had no intention of doing it. They're like, yeah, whatever, I'll throw that in. But that's a hot spot for the buyer. So you can use that as leverage, right? That's important. Yeah. How can you make sure that you get closer to list or better than list to throw those in and to throw in the non-compete? I think there's opportunity there. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing with the non-compete is that it is contract-based, right? So unless you're actually willing to, you know, go after that contract or enforce that contract, eh, I don't know. So if you're dealing with a, you know, a seller that's, let's say, a Canadian national in Hong Kong and you're an American, it's like, uh, how are you going to go after that non-compete? That might be difficult, especially on a smaller deal. So just keep that in yeah. mind that even if they're, you know, willing to sign it like, you know, do you believe them, right? Does it make sense that they're not doing that? Did they lie and have a site in the space they didn't tell you about? Why would they do that, right? So these are, I think, important things to keep in mind. Let's get to the fourth point, man. Stock versus asset sale. Have you ever done a stock deal? Yeah, yeah. We actually did one about a month ago. It is a lot more complicated. Probably 10% of the deals that are done are done that way. Most of the time, they're larger deals. But it can be something that's just necessary. I mean, if somebody has a corporation and, you know, just has things set up originally as a company that is doing business with stock and is maybe taking an investor and all these things, it just an asset sale just isn't possible or wise from a tax perspective. 
So, I mean, if at all possible, you always want to stick to an asset sale because it's the pain. <laughs> it's a pain to do the stock sale, a lot more paperwork, you know, and you get into everything is legal. Even me as a consultant has to be extra, extra careful about any advice that I'm giving. I can't talk as freely as I can if it's an asset sale. So it does. It gets a little more complicated with the stock sales. That's interesting. So, yeah, we've done all asset deals. In fact, attorneys and CPAs I've spoken to say that 99% of the time an asset sale is you know, always better for the yep. buyer. So it's always better on the buy side and mostly on the sell side too. I guess like where a stock sale would make sense, if it's a very large deal and you've got a ton of contracts that are tied up in that corporation and the buyer needs those contracts to remain in place with that corporation, and maybe that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I think in general, as a buyer, you want to argue for an asset sale. And in most cases, the seller wants that too. So if one is really pushing for one or the other, and that's not a sticking point for you or not a hotspot, then let that go and use that as leverage in the deal. What about training, buddy? What do you think about training in terms of a leverage point or a negotiation point? comes to training, you don't know how much you're going to need. And that's the downside. A lot of times until you get into the deal, you just have no idea how much you're going to need. And so the more that you can prepare the seller to just expect to have to do a ton of training and then possibly pleasantly surprise them when you don't really need that much training, the better. The biggest mistake you can make here, though, is not kind of preparing for that possibility. Sometimes people can overestimate the ease of running a business. But the thing to keep in mind is you just don't know what you don't know. When it comes to these deals, it's an absolute nightmare when you get the buyer that is trying to get completely trained on everything before they close the deal. Because the way that it really is supposed to work is that you do due diligence, everything makes sense, you go ahead and close the business once you've agreed on terms. And then you get trained on how to run the business. And so because of that, it's tough to know exactly what you're going to need until you get in there and start to do things. And then the other aspect of that is you want to make sure you've got long-term access and prepare them for that. So you don't know what kind of problem may arise a year down the line or two years down the line where something pops up, an issue, or you're trying to figure out something that's not working correctly on the site. And the only person that really knows the answer is the previous owner. And so you want to be able to go back to them without them feeling annoyed or that that was absolutely outrageous for you to come back and still be bugging them about issues with a deal that was done two years prior. I think as the buyer, if you know the site, you're like, look, I understand this is a drop shipping site, sells very similar or parallel products to what I'm used to selling anyway. I know I could step in. I, don't, I feel pretty comfortable with it. You can use that to kind of like ingratiate yourself to start and say, look, you know, I don't need a whole lot of training. I know what you're doing here. I'm pretty up on it. And that will make it easier for the seller. And especially if there's a hot point for them, like if they have already kind of moved on, maybe the site is declining and, you know, they haven't really worked on it for a couple of months. Like it's hot point for them to be able to move on quickly. And they know they'd rather work with you than someone that they have to spend the next two months kind of getting up to speed. So it's a way for you to kind of like, I think, help yourself out in the negotiation. I think if you're a seller, Making the buyer feel comfortable that you're going to provide the training, that you're going to take care of them in the transfer process is helpful for getting them to close the deal and to get you paid. 
<laughs> yeah, it does make it a, a lot easier if you've got a seller that upfront is saying, hey, I'm willing to be there and do that. But yeah, I love that. I love that perspective. We actually were working on a deal right now where the previous buyer has previously owned pretty much the exact business that he's buying again. And so that is a huge relief to the seller that, hey, I'm going to, because it is a fairly complicated deal and he's going to be able to come in and that gives him a huge leg up over the other buyers that are going to have to come in and figure it out. Six point man, staff and or contractor. So I think there's an interesting one. We get a buyer sometimes like, hey, did the, the employees come with the business? I was like, man, they're not proper. First, I joke. I'm like, man, it's not property. You know, they, they, can't, <laughs> they can't sell you the employees. And then we go, yeah, okay, well, let's, let's talk about it and see where we're at. But sometimes you'll have sellers that say, no, you know, these writers are with me. Yep. You can find your own writers. You can find your own employees. But they're coming with me, right? And so that can be a negotiation point for buyers and sellers. How do you deal with the staff and contractor issue? You know, it's a really tough thing. We're doing a deal that was in the subscription box space. And the tough thing is they were going to give employees, but they had several employees and they had several businesses. They were going to give us, or my buyer, one of the employees or a couple of the employees. But the truth is all of the employees worked on all the projects. They had specific things that they did on all the projects. Yeah. So we really weren't getting the actual team that ran this business. We were just getting kind of this little aspect of the team. And so we ended up not being able to get that deal done because of that. So one of the things you want to think about from the seller's perspective is, you know, let me build an asset that I can sell. Because at the end of the day, yeah, you can say, oh, well, I'm keeping these writers there with me, that kind of thing. But you're going to maximize your value when you can give somebody a well-oiled machine. Every aspect that you take out of that machine makes the machine less valuable because then this person has to go out and buy those parts to put it back together. So if you can, you know, in that case, take a couple of those employees, start to train them and say, hey, yeah, when we built the business, everybody was working on it. It's kind of that kind of thing. But for the last six months, this two-man team has been running this business yeah. based on the revenues. It's continued to grow. So we're going to give those folks with you, and that becomes a more valuable business. Yeah, as a seller is you know, looking to sell, they're going to want to start to separate that out. Just like they're separating out their finances, they're separating out their expenses. That You're going to want to separate out your team so that you know they're all trained up and they've got everything. It's so common, though. If you're running multiple businesses, you have a team of people that are – have their hands in multiple businesses. And you know, if that's the way you run it, that's fine. But as you're coming up on a sale, you may want to separate that out. So Ace, let me ask you. So you're working with a buyer and you know the seller's like, look, I'm not letting my staff go with this deal. What's a counterpoint to that? Like, would you do like some kind of hold back? Would you do, you know, earn out or something? How can you kind of like, you know, balance that out? Yeah, I think we would look at both of those, but I do like to communicate the fact that this makes this business less valuable. Yeah. So that's where we would prefer to do just a discount of the price and maybe do some of those other things in addition. But that would be a really reasonable thing to come back and say, ah, because of that, we really need a discount on this. It's a risk, right? I mean, it's a risk that you're yeah. taking on. It's like a gamble. Like you don't know how the exactly. businesses are going to operate without the team, right? It could completely fall apart. And I think, you know, mentioning this, Ace, kind of a side topic, but that's one of, the, I think, the really valuable parts of bringing a team to deals. So as a buyer, if you have a team that you can kind of step in and they've worked with you on a couple of other deals, 
like that's fantastic. So having that yeah. can step in and take over a business. If you do the deal, you both get the discount because they're not willing to include their team and there's risk and it's a bit of a gamble, but you've got a track record of having them step in and run businesses. That's really helpful. Yeah, exactly. I love that. All right, man. So let's talk the seventh point, which is inventory. And this is an interesting one for the e-commerce peeps, right? This is an e-commerce issue. There's two thoughts, right? On the one hand, on the buy side, like, would you buy the business with zero inventory? Like, it's not a sellable business, right, without the inventory. If it comes to zero inventory, like, you basically just have to buy more inventory to even keep the business running, to even keep it flowing. On the other hand, you know, for businesses that are way overstocked and they had stocked up because they were prepping for growth, they shouldn't be penalized for that either, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. It really goes back to that buying the machine thing. It's not a problem as far as paying for inventory. I think that it's totally fair to say, all right, we want to be paid for inventory. And so this is the price of the business. Where it's really just not as fair is to think that that's some separate thing from the sales price. So if I'm out and I'm buying businesses and I'm looking for a business that has a hundred thousand dollar cash flow, I want to buy that cash flow. I'm not in the business to buy inventory. I didn't wake up and say, you know what I really want? I want $30,000 worth of inventory. So if I have one business that gives me that $100,000 of cash flow and I can buy that $200,000 and it doesn't, you know, maybe it's a SaaS business, whatever, it doesn't have any inventory, then okay, that becomes an option. If I also have this e-commerce deal that's 200,000, but then they want me to pay another 50,000 for inventory, I'm still comparing it to that first deal. Of course you are. So at the end of the day, it still has to be, okay, this is the sales price of the business. And so the seller of that business has to understand that, you know, they're still competing with the other businesses that are available on the market. Yeah, one of the ways you can do this, I think it's relatively fair, is to look at inventory levels like throughout the year and what they've kind of needed the last year, year and a half, two years, and then set a baseline and say, okay, inventory needs to be at this level based on your growth rate. Here's where it is. And the plus or minus percentage that they're above or beyond, you can have them pay for that additional amount, right? Or pay a discount because there's not enough. That's another issue too. Sometimes the sellers will kind of clean out their inventory, (laughs) Right, right, leading up to the sale, saying, oh, I'll just get out my inventory. And they hand it over and they're like, okay, well, now I got to go buy inventory anyway. So you're going to want to take a look at that. And then you can negotiate based on how far off the baseline the inventory is, either up or down. Yeah, absolutely. That's crucial. All right, man, let's do some negotiation tips. And you've got some good ones here, man. You've done some crazy negotiating deals. So what's your first one? Well, one of the things you got to find out is what does the buyer really want or the seller really want that the buyer can provide. So we get involved in a lot of deals where the seller has something going on in their life and they may be distracted because of this or whatever it may be. The time is really important. So like you mentioned, when you've got a person where time is really the most important factor, that's the only reason they're selling the business, a huge negotiation point for that seller would be, okay, I'm going to make sure that this doesn't take up much of your time. When it comes to training, you know, we're going to do spend a day after closing, I'll have everything I need, and then you go your way, you can focus on what you're doing. 
if that is something that really is motivating the sale of that business, that's going to be really valuable to that seller. So just like we were mentioned with the other deal, finding out the why behind the sell of the business and what they are looking for out of the deal can help you figure out how you need to structure the deal or what points you need to put into the deal and focus on when you're communicating your offer in order to get the deal done. The other thing that people don't do as good a job of is that whole process of communicating your offer. You know, one of the things that's a neat process is if you're doing something like some seller financing and you've got a note and you've got maybe an interest rate attached to that note, it showed that seller, hey, with my offer, I'm giving you this amount of money. You're going to finance this over this period. I'm going to hold back. You're going to hold back a little bit of equity on it. And in two years with interest and where I expect the equity to value and what you're getting up front, the real offer is this total amount, which of course is going to be a much bigger number than what they're thinking. And so you want to be clear. You want to show all the benefits. That's a benefit that 99% of buyers never kind of show the seller so that they understand, hey, it's beneficial for you to, to do this structure and allow me these terms. That's funny, Matt. It's a little role reversal there. A lot of times you have like sellers trying to sell on potential, right? They're like, oh, we can do this, this, and this. But this is actually a deal where, you know, the buyer is like, oh, I'm going to do this, this, and this with it. And you're going to make this much more money on the deal because I'm going to be successful building it out. I see how that works, man. I'm on your tricks, Ace. I'm on your I know. Tricks. I know, man. I'm releasing the tricks. <laughs> I like the idea of, and this is an old school sales tactic, but just peeling back the onion until you find out what really motivates them, right? So mm-hmm. the idea that, let's just say, for example, there's a deal. It's a $100,000 deal. And, you know, the buyer's trying to figure out from the seller, you know, why, what's kind of your reasoning? And I was like, oh, I just, I want the money. Okay, you want the money for what? Well, you know, and, and it, you have to dig a little bit. You have to kind of dig these people. But like, so you find out that the reason the seller wants it is, well, they want to buy a house. And so come to yeah. find out, they don't need the full 100000 but they need 50000 in two weeks for the deposit on the house. Okay, now you know kind of what you need to give them in cash to get that deal done. So you're going to need to get that 50000 really quickly. Right. Maybe the rest can be spent over 30 days or, you know, over the next 12 months or whatever. But you know what they need. You know that you need to get done quickly because that's the real heart of the issue is they need 50,000 for the, the deposit within the next two weeks. So now, you know, what you're working with. And, you know, I don't know. There's this whole train of thoughts like, look, you know, don't show your cards and try and, you know, not tell them kind of, you know, where you're coming from, or what you really want, you know, stonewall them or whatever. I don't know. I don't buy that, man. I mean, because ultimately, you both have stepped up. You've raised your hand and said, look, I want to do a deal. You know, being honest with each other and laying out why you want to do that and wide-eyed, like not, you know, some being naive about it, but laying out, you know, what your motivations are helps you find that common ground, I think. Yeah, it does. I call it kind of the combative negotiation versus collaborative negotiation. And the more you can focus on, hey, let's sit on the same side of the table together and tell me what you need. I'm going to tell you what I need and where I'm coming from. And let's work together to see if we can create, like you mentioned, that win-win where both of our needs perfectly meet. It's almost like an axis, you know, like I've got everything that I think would be amazing to have and got all the things that I would never deal with. You have the same, but as you kind of cross those two lines, there's a point where both of your needs kind of meet in the middle. 
And that's where you want to try to end up. And the easiest way to do that is certainly not coming in and being combative and trying to beat the other person down in negotiation. It's easiest to get to that when you're basically sitting on the same side of the table and negotiating together with the attitude of trying to meet each other's needs. Yeah, there's just got to be some trust there. And when you have more trust, you are more collaborative. Like, that's just the way it works. And you can go down the list and say, okay, that's not important to me. They go, yeah, not me either. Okay, let's do this. Let's do this on normal terms. Yep, normal terms. I'm good. And then we're like, hey, let's just do this way. And they're like, no, no, no. I want to do it this way. Okay, now we found a hot spot for both of us. Let's see how we can work this out or you know, we can give somewhere else. So, yeah, I think that's important. And it is cool to stay cool, right? Like you don't know where that deal is going to go. You were telling me, I think, I can't remember if it was on the show or off the show about some crazy deal you have or some guy jumped all over you. Like you were trying to be cool about the deal, you trying to make the offer, and the guy was yelling and screaming and hustling and bustling, just getting all crazy. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, if you'd have kind of lost your cool, that deal could have been done. Like it wouldn't have happened. But because, you know, you were professional about it, walked away, said, look, you know, Let's just think about it, take a little bit of time, cool off, and you end up doing the deal. So even when you think a deal is done, it may not be. It may bounce back and still be alive. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Even I had my doubts on that one that you're talking about. I mean, you know, you could be completely cursed out and, you know, kicked out of somebody's house and all these kind of things that are, are just pretty outrageous. But at the end of the day, the more you can have that attitude of staying cool, being calm, and, you know, saying, hey, you know, we can still start back the conversation when you're ready or if you're ever interested, that at least leaves the door open. And I've had plenty of clients where we go through our deal flow process. I've got a guy up in uh, Toronto that we're going to be doing a video with who, you know, two years ago made an offer on a, a golf Internet business. And they, you know, scoffed at it. Oh, this is outrageous. They actually sold to another person. That person ended up getting sick, couldn't make the payments to them anymore. And they came back to him because they were so impressed with him. It's like, hey, we don't want to put this thing on the market again. We've already gotten all this money. If you will pay the price that you were originally going to pay, we'll give you this deal for no money down. And that becomes just, you know, we've got case after case of things like that when you kind of go through this process and you're doing those extra things and you're communicating what you're trying to do with the seller, that can have a, an impression that maybe you don't even get the deal today. Maybe you don't get it for six months. Maybe you don't get it for a year. But it, you have people that start to come back to you. And, you know, I've been doing this stuff for 16 years, so I've got people that come from 10 years ago and like, oh, I remember you and, you know, we were ready to do a deal. I like that. It's, it's, it's interesting too. Like there's something with entrepreneurship and running your own business where just the time of being in business, you had 16 years, just being in business that long gets people like you do better, right? You're going to grow like without anything else, everything else being equal, just the time <laughs> factor is going to cause yeah. you to do more business and make more connections and do more. And you know, man, we're talking about this today and there's just no way around it. Like negotiating a deal, whether you're on the buyer or the sell side can be really confusing, stressful and maddening. But I think, you know, as we've said, if you can keep your cool, look for the hot spots, can see the other points and then try to negotiate in a collaborative effort that's going to ultimately give you the most amount of deals. And if it doesn't work out, being cool, not burning the bridges, you know, may leave room for opportunity in the future. Yeah, I think the thing to remember is, you know, just keep calm, keep your wits about you. Deals have been proven that they can stay alive a lot longer than the average person thinks. 
Thanks for listening to the Web Equity Show. Now is your chance to be a part of the action. Go to www.webequityshow.com gift and send us your business acquisition or exit question and have it answered on the show. 